going to be finishing up Ruth. So Ruth 4, I invite you to uh, open that up. It's a little bit of a complex passage, and so if you have it open before you, it probably would just help you a teeny bit. Mark and I have a wide range of ages in our families. When both sides of our siblings get together, there's a 35-year span between the oldest and the youngest. We like to joke that I'm the oldest in his family, and he's the youngest in my family, so those are dynamics that we get to share. When we were first married, Mark's youngest sister went to camp and came back on fire for the Lord. And soon we began noticing index cards all over the house in her handwriting that looked something like this. Is God getting the glory? The speaker at camp had challenged the students to think about their daily choices and to be honest about whether those choices honored the Lord I bet if we searched Mark's home that there are some of those cards still around. All these years later, I think about what a good lesson came from that pastor who inspired not just the students, but their families. Because God's glory is dazzling and perfect. His greatness has no equal. His creation is a reflection of his strength and beauty in our lives are a huge contrast to him. We all fall short of his glory through our thoughts and our words and our actions. We reveal how much we need his grace. Lately, I've been reading through all of the kings of Israel and Judah. Here's the pattern in case you haven't read it for a while. The writer tells you their name, how old they were when they became a leader, how long they reigned, and their mother's name. And then they tell you the most important thing that the Lord wants you to know, which is whether or not they did good or evil in the sight of the Lord. And it is heartbreaking how awful so many of them were. Of the 39 kings and one queen, after Solomon, only eight were good, which is a paltry 20%. And then we think, wow, no wonder both kingdoms fell. A person who rejects God has consequences, but when a leader is not submitted to God, it is tragic for a whole nation. Today, as we read and finish Ruth, what we're going to see is ordinary people truly just trying to honor God with their lives. And then he uses that obedience to bless generations, including we who are sitting here today. This is the word of the Lord from Ruth 4. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin, of whom Boaz had spoken, came passing by. So Boaz said, Come over, friend, sit down here. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. He then said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. That is Naomi's husband, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me so that I may know, 
for there is no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, all right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, one thing, the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, ah, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So, when the next of kin said to Boaz, acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, their sons. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today, you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate along with the elders said, We are witnesses. And may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. Then the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They gave him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. Now, Pastor Doug showed us last week how Ruth listened to her mama and went to the threshing floor to propose to Boaz. And we need to understand a little of the context for why she did that. When Naomi and Ruth return from Moab as mother and daughter-in-law, they have nothing. So they have to scavenge for food the best that they can. And Ruth starts gleaning at the field of Boaz, who was coincidentally a close relative of Naomi. This is important because when she goes to ask for his hand, she does so thinking that he is the male who has responsibility to care for them. He is the reason they have survived thus far, so this makes sense. Now, in the Mosaic law, there was a provision for childless women whose husbands had died called leveret marriage. 
Now, this simply means marriage with a brother-in-law. So that when a man dies with no children, the brother is obligated to marry the widow to provide an heir. And in this way, they preserve the family line and also keep the assets, the land, whatever, in the family. This person who does this is called the Goel, meaning the guardian redeemer. And their job was to stabilize the family situation with whatever means necessary. Now, a brother could say no, but that was shameful. And in Deuteronomy 25, it says that the woman can spit in his face. Look it up. So, the scene begins by Boaz going up to the gate. And of course, the gate uh, in ancient cities was the center of congregation. There was a lot of space and people would go there for conversation, to settle business matters, for judicial matters. The poor would be there uh, to get help. And so uh, Boaz goes there and he knew that he would be able to find witnesses. So I want to think of three ways here in which ordinary people honor the Lord. And also, we will see then how God blesses those ordinary people who live for him. So first, we show our honor to God by how we conduct ourselves with others. So Ruth has asked Boaz if he would marry her. And in chapter 3, he tells her, you are a worthy and a loyal woman. However, there is a kin, there is family who is closer than me. So I'm going to go and find that guy and see if he will act as your guardian redeemer. So Boaz goes and looks for this relative to see if they can find uh, some common ground and agree with what should happen next. Now, let's talk about negotiation because that's what is happening here. The word negotiation comes uh, to us from the old French and Latin words in the early 15th century, and it means business and trade. By the late 1590s, the word had come to mean to communicate in search of mutual agreement. We know negotiation happens every day of our lives, and it starts when we're about three. Three-year-olds have already learned the art of getting what they want from parents who quickly have to learn new negotiating skills that they didn't know that they would need when they became parents. I had a mom come out of church, a second service, and she said, let me tell you about my three-year-old this week. And I said, okay. And she said, okay, it's time for a nap. And the three-year-old said, "Um, I'll take a nap if you give me $60. And the mother was like, what? You don't even know about money. What are you talking about? And no, I'm not going to give you $60. And the little girl said, okay, well, how about five tenths? <laughs> yeah, this isn't a bad thing, right? That kids learn how to negotiate early because we have to negotiate all the time out in the world with people who have different ideas about what would be best. But negotiation is a little bit like playing poker. Because you want to win, right? And you want to use the advantage that you have. But you don't know what the other person's motives are. And you don't know necessarily what they're holding in their hand. In this case, the unnamed relative has the advantage because he is first in line to inherit. 
Do you know how much advice there is out there about negotiation in terms of books and blogs and articles? And you, they want you to think about what kind of negotiation are you going into? What are the stages of the negotiation? What is your personal conflict style? What do you want out of it? What tactics are you going to employ? And we know that negotiating things is complex, whether it's with our three-year-old or we're buying a car or we're negotiating with nations about diplomatic issues. The hope is for all parties to walk away with something. Now, Harvard researchers have identified three basic kinds of negotiators, soft, hard, and principled. And this is helpful for what we see here. Boaz is no pushover, but he is also not contentious. He is seeking a solution that would be best for the people involved. Boaz honors God with his honesty. He could have just gone and married Ruth, maybe without even finding this guy. But his first concern is for the widows. He's not trying to exploit anyone. We didn't know until this moment in the book of Ruth that Naomi had land. And scholars think that the land was sold when the family moved to Moab. But Ruth can't buy it back because she's a woman. So she needs her next of kin to get the family uh, lot back. And this is how Boaz starts the conversation. It's a shrewd move because he's not negotiating Ruth. He's checking to see what the relative really wants. Now, it would be costly for the relative because they buy the land and then they have to pay to work the land and then they have to pay for the widows and then they would perhaps produce an heir and so then they have to also pay for the child. So it would be a big expense. Now, remember, he doesn't have to marry, neither one of them have to marry Ruth. It's not the letter of the law, but they understand both of them, the spirit of the law. Once the man jumps at the chance for the land, Boaz tells him about Ruth, and then he backs away. He tells Boaz, I'm willing to give you that right. So then they seal the deal, and the man takes off his sandal and gave it to Boaz in good faith. And that shows that now Boaz is the Goel. He is the Redeemer kinsman. He has the right to purchase the land and also to marry Ruth. Now, while we might not understand all of the cultural nuances of this deal and everything that's going on, we know integrity is what is really important here. Boaz is a trustworthy character in how he does business. So then we stop and we think about our own lives. What is our character when we negotiate with other people? Does God get the glory? Or are we trying to get whatever we can for ourselves? We show what we care about the most in how we handle our affairs and how we treat people. Second, another way we show our honor to God is how we care for those who have nothing. We've touched on this briefly before with Boaz, but I want to talk about it again briefly because God is so glorified in it. We see it most in the contrast between Boaz and the unnamed relative. In chapter 1, we see that Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem, and the whole town is a flutter, and everybody is talking about it because Naomi has come back. So if you were the nearest of kin to Naomi, and you knew she had come back and she was destitute along with her daughter-in-law, would you make contact with them? Would you at least check in? You see, his absence in the narrative until now tells us more about him than what we read here. He doesn't show compassion. 
but Boaz does. Boaz shows the hesed, the extraordinary loving kindness of the Lord to the widows when someone needed to step up. This is actually also shown in how the relative acts in the negotiation. We understand, you know, he can't do it. It's not in his best interest. He has all these other things going on. But even when the situation is spelled out to him, he doesn't offer to help Boaz in any way. Are they okay? How is Naomi doing? Do you need me? I mean, although I can't take on the full responsibility, what can I offer? His silence is deafening. What do we do for those in our life who have nothing? Who come across our path, who for some reason enter our sphere? There's a certain amount of fear that comes with helping. We're afraid maybe of our resources being drained or somebody taking advantage of us. But here's my point. When the nearest relative was asked to help, he jumped out of the picture as quickly as he could because it didn't benefit him. And when we're asked to give and everything inside of us is like, no, heck no, 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 I'm not doing that. Let's at least take time to consider it. Let's at least take time before the Lord and say, Lord, is this what you would have me do? Everything I have belongs to you, God, and so I want to honor you with those who have little, because we are how God expresses his love to them. Third, Boaz demonstrates that we show our honor to God with our sacrifice. Boaz was willing to rearrange his entire life for these two widows, and we acknowledge he gets a wife out of this one that he holds in high esteem, maybe one that he deeply loves, but realize that he's willing to marry her or he's willing to have this other guy marry her, but what he wants is what is best for Ruth and for Naomi. We don't know much about Boaz. He seems like he's an older bachelor, but think about the sacrifice that he's making here that the other relative is unwilling to agree to. It was hugely important in this culture for the family line to continue. Since Ruth's husband died without a child, who will remember him? This is part of the leveret marriage, that the close male relative ensures that the dead man's line survives. Boaz doesn't need land. He wants to help Ruth and Naomi. Verse 10 says he is willing to step in and act to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance so that the dead man will not be cut out of his family. We are told that Ruth's husband's name was Malon, and that is remembered because Boaz was willing to set aside his own rights. To sacrifice something important to us for someone else is part of what it means to be God's people in the world. We serve a Savior who sacrificed all that he had, and he asks us that we would sacrifice part of our life here so that people might know him, so that people might understand who he is. This was a call of Boaz's life from the Lord. But all of us are called to do God's work, and it might require us to give up some aspect of what we hold on to. Boaz declares in chapter 3 that as long as the Lord lives, that he would care for these widows. 
he redeemed them and he gave them a place back in the family. God showed him how to do this and he shows us how to do it as well. This brings us to our last point. We see how God comes near to those who honor him. In the beginning of the chapter, Boaz waits for the relative who just happens to be passing by. Throughout Ruth, we see these coincidences. We see how God is providing for those who are obedient to him. There's a quote that I love from people throughout history. No one really knows exactly who said it. There are lots of different ways to say it. But here's a variation I like. A coincidence is a small miracle when God chooses to remain anonymous. God is kind of anonymous in the book of Ruth. And yet he is everywhere. He is caring for the widows. He is helping Boaz be a person of integrity. He is thus upholding the value of the widow, but also the foreigner. Almost every time you read the name Ruth, you read Ruth the Moabite. Almost every time the author is trying to tell you, yeah, she's not from here. She's not Jewish. She's not from Judah. Her identity is that she is a foreigner. But God provides generously for her because she chose to belong to him. In this book, there are so many prayers in this chapter alone. There are the prayers of the men, the prayers of the women. We see that the Lord helps Naomi to conceive, I mean, Ruth to conceive. We see that Naomi gets to hold a child again in her arms. The family is recognized as trying to do what is right. So they are blessed by the name of the Lord. God uses this family to bring his purposes to bear when we get to the end, we see what an important role Boaz and Ruth have played because they are the great-grandparents of King David, which puts them in the lineage of the Messiah. So Boaz steps in as the redeemer for Ruth, but it is God who is working silently behind the scenes to provide a redeemer for those who have nothing and who need to be saved. This is a beautiful story of God's loving kindness before we even know who Ruth and Boaz, who their family will grow to be, and how he will use their obedience to bring hope in the world. Hal said today, we don't know what we're doing that is going to ultimately bring God's hope for generations to come. Ruth, an outsider, becomes part of the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. Life is not about blood ties or religiously important families or where a person is from as much as it is about God's deep love and plan for his kingdom. The book of Ruth begins in grief and ends in hope. That is the story of God for all of us. So when you reflect on your life today, ask yourself, is God getting the glory? We read this story and we might think, well, yeah, that was good for them and it was easy for those who were involved, but these were just ordinary, regular people like us who lived intentionally so that they would honor the Lord. Because when regular people give to others with the selfless love of God, God comes in and brings extraordinary life. The question about who is being glorified is one that we ourselves should daily ask. And maybe we should be putting cards all over our house and all over every place that we would see as a reminder of who we have committed to serve and who is helping us live out his love in us. 
we're not just here for ourselves, but for the greater picture of redemption that God is bringing to the world. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.